Hey there, history fans. And welcome back to the History Explains It All podcast, where we cover a variety of historical topics from the Stone Age to the Modern Age. I'm Lauren. And I'm Melissa. On today's episode, we are covering Elmer McCurdy. What happened to him in life and in the afterlife. In addition to that, you could probably title this entire episode, Bodies Happen to be Mistaken for Halloween Decorations. (laughs) Yes. So disclaimer for today's episode. It does discuss the topic of dead bodies as well as situations of suicide, which is not suitable for young or anyone who is uncomfortable or dislikes these topics. And if you are having suicidal thoughts or need someone to talk to, uh, you can get in contact with the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or go to suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Today's episode, Elmer McCurdy. So for a start off, Elmer McCurdy was born in 1880 in Washington. His mother was Sadie McCurdy, who was 17 at the time when she gave birth to him which was, of course, considered shameful at the time. It still kind of is. And in order to protect Sadie, her brother George and his wife, Helen, adopted Elmer. In 1890, George died of tuberculosis. And after his death, Sadie and Helen moved to Bangor, Maine, taking Elmer with them, of course. And after the move... Sadie told Elmer that she was actually his mother and that the man and woman that he called mom and dad were technically his aunt and uncle. What? What? Not know that. Yeah. They're like, technically his aunt and uncle. That's like, this is almost like a Ted Bundy situation right there. Well, I mean, it did, it did seriously mess with him. This was not favorable for him. So... Yeah, he was completely rocked by by this news. And uh, as he got older, he ended up being a drinker. And, well, by the time he was 20, he didn't even have a job. And back then, you're working young. Eventually ended up like this deep, dark, internal place. And Sadie then died. After Sadie's death, he began to move westward. He went was moving from Maine towards the western coast of the United States of America. And he was taking jobs as a plumber and a miner along the way. In 1907, he made the decision to join the military and ended up being stationed in Kansas at Fort Leavenworth. And while he was in the army, he was trained as a nitroglycerin expert. Yes, this is an important fact for later. <laughs> Three years later, in 1910, he was honorably discharged from the army. And, uh, well, after he left the army, he began a extremely short career as a criminal. An extremely bad one, too. Well, why don't you go into some detail about that? Okay, you guys ready? Because this one is a doozy. It's pretty messed up. (laughs) Oh, man. I don't think I've seen anyone as 
horrible criminal activity as McCurdy. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Just, oh my goodness. So most of his robberies would take place around the Great Plains area. So that would be what we have, what we call the Midwest here in the U.S. So we got like Oklahoma and the Dakotas, Missouri, Kansas, all those areas there. He did a couple bank robberies, but most of his heists were train robberies. He did three in his time as a criminal. And every single time he screwed up bad. So going back to the whole nitroglycerin part, he would set up some nitroglycerin near the safe, which they, the gang of criminals he was with were thought to have had quite a lot of money in these safes. But he gauged it incorrectly, and every single time he went to blow up the glycerin, not only did it blow up the safe, it melted all of the silver inside. So now it's sort of worthless in a sense. He can't just go it out and burn the actual cash. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Burnt cash flying around. Burnt cash, melted, melted gold, melted silver. Well, gold, maybe not gold, but one of the train heists, he did that. They had believed that the safe held $4,000 back then. And he only made off with $450 in melted silver. I mean, still a lot for back then, but nowhere near 4000 And then the last one, this is hilarious. The last train heist he did, this one is probably my favorite of any train heist gone bad ever. <laughs> so he and his gang had estimated that this train would be carrying on $400,000 at the time. And so they set up everything. They got the nitroglycerin around the safe. And then realized they were robbing the wrong train. They had either misjudged the train coming by or misjudged which train it was actually supposed to be. And by the time their robbing was finished for that train heist, they only ended up with $46, two jugs of whiskey, and a handful of personal items from the passengers in the train. So in other words, they robbed a passenger train instead. (laughs) Yeah very stupid and that would actually be the last heist that elmo mccurdy would ever be a part of because not long after that last train heist probably because every time he tried to rob a safe on a train he blew it up his gang members decided to separate from him and he was kind of on his own and it was also around the same time that a two thousand dollar bounty was put out on his head and when the gang had split up What McCurdy was not aware of was that he was being followed by a posse of three sheriffs, Bob and Stringer Fenton and Dick Wallace, as well as their pack of bloodhounds. And on October 7th, 1911, they followed him to the Osage, Oklahoma Badlands, where it is reported that McCurdy's very last words were, you'll never take me alive. And they didn't because it was an hour long gunfight and he died. So not long after the gunfight ended, the sheriffs took him to the embalming office at Pahuska, Oklahoma, which dating towards the Civil War in America, it was not uncommon for unclaimed bodies that the embalmers had prepared to have them on display, partly as a way of showing off, I have this body here. Does anyone know who this is to try to claim it so that the family can 
have the body for burial, but also it was a way of advertisement. And by that, I mean, here's this body that I have prepared in my own shop. It is very well preserved, very lifelike. Come to me, use my services. I think you're jumping ahead a little bit. What'd you have? Did you have something I missed? Well, yeah. So obviously McCurdy, McCurdy's body is taken to, his name is Joseph Johnson, by the way, the undertaker who embalms McCurdy's body at the time, which by the way, they used arsenic in the embalming fluid. I just thought that was an interesting little tidbit in there. They used arsenic for almost everything back then. I just thought it was interesting that it was used in embalming fluid. Okay. <laughs> but he embalms McCurdy's body and of course there's no one to come claim and pay for McCurdy's body. So of course he's not going to give up the body until he receives payment. And he's literally holding on to McCurdy's body for six months. Six months. Half of a year. And then he puts it on show for people to view it. And people people come and pay, I think it was a nickel, nickel, and they pay it in the McCurdy's mouth. Yeah, so what Johnson had actually done is he had propped McCurdy up in the lobby of his funeral home, staging it because he was a Wild West ally, even though this is 1911 and the Wild West was over for the most part by this time. Uh, But he had propped him up, standing up with a rifle beside him, probably similar to the picture, if you've ever seen the picture of Billy the Kid, the only known possible picture of Billy the Kid standing next with a rifle. We'll put a picture of Billy the Kid up. So you get an idea. Yeah. And Johnson decided to advertise a sort of morbid display of advertising, I guess. But he billed McCurdy's body as, quote unquote, the bandit who wouldn't give up. And this is when people saw it as a thing to go see. And they came and he charged them five cents to see the body up close which is when people would start putting money in his mouth. Oh, side note. I don't know if you have this in your notes. This is crazy. So uh, supposedly one incident that involved McCurdy's body while he was still at the undertakers were Johnson's children putting on roller skates. Now, side note, at this time, roller skates were rather popular. They had been invented a long time prior to that. I think the first one was in the 1700s and the craze became more popular for roller skates. We're talking the four wheeled, square roller skates rather than roller blades but skating parks were had really become a big thing around the turn of the century so by 1911 it wasn't an unpopular thing for some families to own roller skates so the kids would apparently roller skate around the house now the house back then and funeral homes were usually one in the same you'd have the the family living in one portion or the upper level while the funeral parlor was usually below level the kids would rollerblade around the house. And at one point, they decided to roll McCurdy around the house on rollerblades, too. Very weakened at Bernie's style. 1911. No, there weren't any cell phones. There weren't any computers. There was no internet. There were some books. But I wonder how young these kids were and how bored they must have been to rollerblade around the house with the dead body their dad kept in the lobby. Weird. <laughs> but also, if you grow up in that kind of situation, death isn't 
think or dead bodies don't probably don't scare you no no and then and people who usually work with dead bodies whether you're talking coroners funeral directors people who perform morticians morticians dark sense of humor oh yeah so basically johnson ends up having mccurdy's body on display for five years he's basically had mccurdy's body for five and a half years total until two men show up at johnson's work and they show up claiming to be mccurdy's brothers I don't know about you, but uh, as far as I know, McCurdy had no brothers. As far as I understand, when McCurdy turned 20 and he made the move out west from Maine, either he, the, his immediate family had either all died or they became estranged from him. So he had no relatives that he was aware of who could come claim his body. Yeah, because we know that George, the man who was his uncle, but father also father by adoption uh died and sadie his actual mother died i just didn't find anything about what happened to helen so as far as i know he didn't have anybody and he didn't have any siblings so these two people claiming to be johnson's uh claiming to be mccurdy's brothers at johnson's but they weren't his brothers obviously and what they really wanted to do was claim his body in order to put it on in their carnival show. These two men were actually James and Charles Patterson, who owned the Great Patterson Carnival Show. And much like Joseph Johnson, they wanted to put him on display. And they ended up calling him, quote, embalmed bandit, end quote. Adding to that... Prior to the Patterson brothers actually claiming McCurdy's body, other sideshows had approached Johnson to actually acquire McCurdy's body for their sideshows, but Johnson wouldn't sell because it was kind of a good way of making money for his funeral parlor. But the Great Patterson Carnival shows had your standard carnival acts. You had the strong man, the bearded lady, and such. They also had attractions labeled Alligator Girl and the Torture King. I don't know what the Torture King would be, but that's an unusual one. And additional names that McCurdy would have throughout the rest before I started to get a little ahead really quick, but he would also have other nicknames that they would call him throughout the other sideshows that he would end up being a part of. So there, all of his nicknames that we're aware of, there's the Bandit Who Wouldn't Give Up, the Embalmed Bandit, the famous Oklahoma Outlaw, the Man of Many Aliases, and the thousand-year-old man, that's a new one. Six years later, after McCurdy was picked up from Johnson's funeral parlor by the Patterson brothers, in 1922, his body was given to a man named Louis, Louis Sonny. And the body was actually a security deposit. One of the carnies put him down as a security deposit. And by the way, they ended up defaulting on the the $500 loan that I guess the deposit was for. And therefore Sonny got to keep the, keep McCurdy's body. Uh, Louis Sonny actually was the owner of the museum of crime. 
So the Museum of Crime was similar to a current-day Madame Tussauds with wax-figured criminals. And they held on to McCurdy's body, and they, I mean the entire Sunny family, for 45 years. Now imagine, this man has been already been out, and dead, and unburied for almost 10 years at this point, but probably a little over. And then they keep him out for another 45 years. And they, during the 45 years of the Sunny family holding onto his body, he, uh, he was given on loan to several, several people. You want to tell them about the movie theater lobby one? So, sorry, this one's just crazy to me. I think at this point, they didn't realize he was an actual dead body at this point. I think they probably thought he was a mannequin because this one's just crazy. So 1933, the film Narcotics, which is an anti-drug propaganda film, as the movie aired in different cinemas throughout the country, he would be taken to different lobbies and movie theaters and propped up as a display for the movie, portraying a morally bankrupt dope fiend. By this point, his body had already fully mummified, and we'll have pictures. His body also, because he's mummified, and right now he, you know, there's everything inside is either has solidified in some way or dried up his body's actually shrunk as well so he looks like a very small the skin stretched around his face creepy but i think they thought he was a dummy at this point Uh, he'd been dead for 22 years just wow Uh, longer longer than that i think in the 1911 to 1911 oh no 1911 you're right 1911 all right just a couple quick more so uh the family she was talking about would periodically lend him out to other sideshows as their attraction. And along the way, I think at the one of the sideshows touring around Mount, around Mount Rushmore, I can't speak today. He apparently sustained a lot of wind damage. He said, I think at one point he lost a couple fingers and most of his ears. That's later. That's not under this family. Oh, that was later. Oh, okay. I'm getting, sorry, I'm getting ahead. Um, yeah. I'm jumping ahead. Jumping ahead. I'm just jumping to going by my notes. Sorry. Well, in 1967, he was used, and this one is is real. I didn't get a chance to to look for the movie, but apparently he not only made it to movie theater lobbies, he actually made it into a movie. In 1967, he was used as, again, probably a mannequin or dummy film prop in the movie She Freak from 1967. Oh, goody. Yeah. So that's interesting. I'm now going to watch that movie and specifically be looking for for him. That's what I would do. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. Yeah, so they're, they're loaning him out. And, you know, after holding on to him for over a period of 45 years, McCurdy's identity was lost. Like, the, like, sh- like Melissa was saying, he was probably just thought to be a prop dummy. They didn't know that this was actually a human mummified body and that his name was Elmer McCurdy. So in 1968, the Sonny family sold the body to a man named Singh, and he also would loan the body to traveling sideshows. Theme here, guys, theme here. Traveling sideshows, Elmer McCurdy body, attraction, 
One of the sideshows that Singh loaned him out to was located near Mount Rushmore in South Dakota. They had to get him to location from the West Coast to South Dakota. By this time, he'd already been in California, and now he has to go all the way out to South Dakota. Well, in the process of getting from one location to the next, he lost his ears, fingers, and toes. They blew off because they tied him down to the roof of the vehicle. One of the sources I found that and described him as having been strapped to the top of a truck, not unlike a Christmas tree. Lovely portrayal. That's that's lovely. A lovely image in my head. You're welcome. Um, after the incident, <laughs> after the incident of him losing his ears, fingers, and toes. Singh decided that he could no longer show or loan out the body anymore. And again, McCurdy's body was sold to an amusement park in Long Beach, California. This amusement park then painted the body in neon paint and hung it in their haunted house. Neon orange paint. He was glow in the dark orange. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Uh, Real quick, real quick on that before we get into the, how they found out he was actually a dead body and not a prop. The, the amusement park at Long Beach, uh, the area is still around today. It's what we call Rainbow Park or the Pike area down in downtown Long Beach on the waterfront by the harbor where it's opposite the Queen Mary. At the time, it was called the New Pike Park Laugh in the Dark Fun House, which is where they found him. So it was, no, it's not an amusement park anymore. There aren't, there was at one point a roller coaster and there was a really big beach and lots of things you can go. There's shops and things there now, but there isn't any of this park stuff still there. But at the Laugh in the Dark Fun House, it was a horror themed sort of small little roller coaster ride where you'd be in the cart and it would bring down the lap bar and it would go through and things would pop out at you and things would be hanging or get in your face you know little fun things to do and every time you go through there would be this neon glow-in-the-dark orange mannequin or at least you thought it was a mannequin hanging from a makeshift gallows swinging as the cart would go by and it's Apparently that the, in order to get the body to stay on the makeshift gallows, the people who had constructed it when they had what they thought was a mannequin, drilled a hole through the neck in order to fit the noose through it. And every now and then the body would seep a yucky yellow kind of goo. Which So that wasn't a clue? Okay. Not, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how you missed that. Bodily fluid coming out from a mannequin. Must not be a mannequin. (laughs) I don't understand how you missed that. But hey, 1960s, right? 1960s, 70s, 80s, that kind of period. Oh, definitely 1960, late 60s, early 70s, because the next part we have happened in 1976. Yep. So in 1976, it was discovered that this hanging mannequin in the haunted house was actually an actual man and not a prop. Oh boy. It was discovered during an episode filming of the $6 million man when a crew member was trying to move the prop or body. 
and the arm broke off. So Alan McCurry's arm just went, and this exposed the preserved bone and tissue, like muscle tissue, inside the arm. Well, that wasn't the only the thing body- that happened that day. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> This one got a really big laugh from the paramedics. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And uh, this isn't, I don't think it's supposed to be funny, but it's just a tad ridiculous. So when the crew member who was trying to move the body realized the arm snapped off and they described it as a dry snap, like you would a twig. And he saw that there was still bone and muscle on the inside. They obviously called the police. They called the fire department. They called the paramedics and they reported it as saying we have a severely dehydrated man here at the park and he needs assistance first of all i don't see how the arm of a dead the the arm of a severely dehydrated person will just snap off but that's what they reported it as when the paramedics showed up and saw the body that the crewmen were referring to apparently they had a really big laugh saying that's a corpse not a dehydrated person like that that's definitely a corpse with it's been dead for a while and then everyone was going what wow amazing Mm -hmm. another uh amazing factor that people are just missing oh gosh okay and the body ends up getting taken to the la coroner's office remember at this point the name elmer mccurdy is no longer connected to this body so the uh, L.A. coroner's office ends up finding a bullet in the chest cavity, the arsenic embalming fluid, a penny from 1924 in his mouth along with the ticket stub, which is what they used to identify the body. Uh-huh. That's how they identified that this body belonged to that of Elmer McCurdy, who died over 60 years prior I'm a little surprised that a penny and a ticket stub from around 1924 were still in his mouth. I'm thinking, thinking maybe it was right in the back of the mouth, maybe down the throat, because of all the times Probably. they've moved him around and it hadn't fallen out yet. Probably. The advantages of embalming someone is that the skin doesn't go away either and trapping stuff. Uh, so after that, the body was then released to Guthrie, Oklahoma where McCurdy was buried in April 1977 at the Summit View Cemetery. He was buried in the, quote, Boot Hill, end quote, section of the cemetery, which was specifically for outlaws. He buried a man who failed at being an outlaw in the outlaw section. And, of course, this is 66 years post his actual death. By the way, he ended up being buried under two yards of concrete, or six six feet, six feet of concrete, in order to deter people from wanting to dig up the remains. And even after the burial, he still held an influence over society. Uh, a lot of people believe that he was the inspiration for the character of Jonah Hex in the comics. His backstory is similar to McCurdy's in the sense that after Hex dies, his body gets embalmed and then put on display and moved around and it just goes on several journeys and well it reminds you a lot of Elmer McCurdy there. Oh, oh, side note. Uh his grave is also right next to Bill Doolin of the Wild Bunch. Oh yeah. 
a far more successful outlaw than McCurdy. Very much so. Boy, say. <laughs> Speaking of McCurdy influencing things, there was a play that came out, I believe it was in 1977, that was titled The Life and Afterlife of Albert J. McCurdy, a melodrama in two acts. Don't know nothing about it. I don't know if it was successful, but it was definitely interesting. And then there was a book put out, I think in 2002, I don't remember off the top of my head, sorry. That's called Elmer McCurdy, The Misadventures in Life and Afterlife, an American Outlaw by Mark Svenvold, S-V-E-N-V-O-L-D. Yep, yep, yep. Well, that's not our only tale for today. The major tale, though. That's the major tale. So now we're going to get into a few incidences of other bodies that have been unfortunately passed off or discovered and thought to have been Halloween displays. Again, as you posted at the top of the episode, disclaimer for these in particular, some of these are cases of suicide. Again, if, if you need to someone to talk to or if you are having suicidal tendencies, the number for the suicide hotline is one 800 273 8255. And you can also go to suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Again, this is particularly the part that might not be suitable for also for anyone who is squeamish towards these kind of topics or for little ears as well, too. So our first tale is of Rebecca Cade. And these all happened between middle of October to first week of November. So this one was October 16th in 2015. And her body was discovered hanging from a fence in Chillicoot, Ohio. And one of the ladies who had found her at first, she thought she was just a Halloween zombie. The body was discolored. She was hanging. She was covered in blood. Uh, eventually, construction workers found her and realized that this wasn't a mannequin and reported it as a dead body. She had been killed by blunt force trauma to her head and neck, which would probably explain some of the bruising possible that the lady who first found her thought it was part of some makeup. Her murderer was identified as Donnie Coconor Jr. And he was originally held on a $2 million bond. And I believe Donnie was actually her ex-boyfriend. And it's believed that she was actually trying to run away from him when she got caught on the fence. And that's where he killed her. In 2017, he was actually acquitted of her murder. So I don't know if it's listed as an unsolved or solved and then in October 15th of 2009, an unnamed male in the 800-unit apartment building in Marina Del Rey here in Los Angeles, some of the neighbors had noticed a body slumped over a chair in the back balcony of one of the tenants on the third floor. But since it was around Halloween, they thought nothing of it and said one of the residents actually said it looked fake. It looked like someone had thrown a dummy on the back of the chair. And it sat there for four days until the police actually arrived. And when they did, they unfortunately found that they, discover they discovered the decomposing body of a 70-year-old man with a gunshot wound to his eye. And the police do believe that that was an act of suicide. The third one I have is an unknown male in 2014. A pair of handymen were cleaning out a rental home in Spring Hill, Florida, when they found what they thought was a mannequin hanging in their garage and decided to take the body down and take it to the dump because they thought it was just a mannequin. Only on the way to the dump did they actually realize this was a real person. The 
police would confirm that the 33 year old man who had hung himself lived in the home and had actually hung himself in the garage several weeks prior to being discovered. And the property owners who had been showing off the home said they noticed a bad smell coming from the garage and saw what they thought was a prop left by the former tenants and kind of left it there until it was discovered by the handyman. Don't know how that really happens, but okay. In 2005, an unknown female, a 42-year-old woman, hung herself from a tree in Frederick, Delaware. And apparently, very early that morning, she had climbed up a tree to hung her, hang herself from. And it was about 15 feet or so above the busy sidewalk streets. Passengers thought it was just the local neighbor getting into the festive mood and would walk under the body not knowing what it was. But she was discovered as being not a prop uh, later on that day and was taken down. In 2013, an unnamed male was found collapsed on the front of his steps. A mailman in Denver came across what he thought was just a really, really good Halloween decorations sprawled out on the, the steps of a front porch that he was delivering mail to. Turns out that the owner had come home from a late night shift and had unfortunately collapsed on the steps on the way in and laid there overnight. And police did do an investigation and the Postal Service eventually issued a statement that said when the carrier that morning heard what happened, he was visibly shocked and extremely upset. My next one happened in 2011. This would be an unknown female as well, but this one turns out actually good. This happened in St. Louis, Missouri. A teenager was working as an actor in a haunted house. She was actually, her spot was supposed to be the haunted bathroom display. And I don't know how the display looked and what kind of ropes and situations there were there, but somehow she doesn't remember, but she was supposed to be in a certain position within the display and got caught up in the ropes or cording that were in the display and kind of asphyxiating herself. She was able to try to kick around and try to loosen the ropes around her neck, but it wasn't working. And people who came in through the exhibit thought she was just acting out as part of the display, not knowing what was really going on. Eventually, a coworker made rounds to check on everyone in their rooms and found her unconscious hanging in the display. She was then rushed to the hospital. She was in a coma for three days, but apparently she has made a recovery. Unfortunately, she does, uh, as the report says, suffer from short-term memory loss, occasional blackouts, and some dizziness. And the last one I have is... This would be the case of Kimberly Katrinos in 1997. Kimberly was outside where she was struck by a car in front of someone's haunted haunted house display. And she lay on the ground, bloodied and, and hurt. And the people passing by thought that she was just a prop or an actor part of this little fun house that's in front of the, in, in front of the display. And in fact, one of the eyewitnesses would tell the police that she had reached up from her position on the ground as if she was trying to get his attention or trying to, to sort of grab towards him. He thought he was, she was just one of the performers for the display and didn't think anything of it. Unfortunately, Kimberly would die from her injuries. Police were able to track down the driver who stated that he was actually not aware that he had hit anyone. Apologize for the sort of somber ending to this episode but that's what i've got for today anything else for you nope 
that'll do for this episode of History Explains It All. Well, in that case, we will end today's episode and we will see you next week with our short weird history segments. Mini-sode. We'll call them mini-sodes. Our mini-sode. And we will catch you later. Bye. Bye.